Hello, this is the Vanguard Court Watch podcast. I'm your host, David Greenwald. Right now, Vanguard Court Watch operates in three counties in California, including San Francisco and Sacramento. Our goal is to shine a light on ordinary injustice in the court system. This podcast is hoping to go a step further and shine a spotlight on criminal justice reforms on a national level. The story of Jeffrey Deskovic is a classic case of wrongful convictions. At the age of 17, he was accused of raping and murdering a 15-year-old school classmate. This despite the fact that his DNA was excluded from DNA found at the scene, and despite the fact that he recanted on a false confession. In 2006, 16 years later, a new DA authorized DNA testing, and this time it not only excluded his DNA from the scene, but DNA was found to match another man, a man already serving a life term for another murder. Since then, Jeff has won a settlement and used that money to create the Jeffrey Deskovic Foundation. And he went back and not only got his college degree, but graduated from law school. He recently took the bar exam and awaits the results. On October 26th, Jeffrey Deskovic will be the keynote speaker at the Vanguard's fundraiser on progressive prosecution. Welcome to the show, Jeffrey Deskovic. Thank you for having me. So what can you tell us about how you came to even be a suspect in the case, uh, let alone convicted? So Peekskill was a city of approximately 25,000 people. It's Peekskill, New York, in Westchester County, so suburbs. Murders were pretty rare there. So this murder, uh, it kind of created an atmosphere of fear, rumor, paranoia. I got on the piece. I got on a police radar through two ways. Firstly, some of the other school kids that the police spoke to, uh, they told the police that they might want to talk to me because I was like quiet and to myself. I didn't quite fit in, so that was part of it. But then another part of it is they, the police, uh, interpreted my being sensitive and emotional because this was really my first brush with death, and I was kind of. Um, uh, I was kind of, uh, it kind of touched me. You know, so the victim was a classmate. She was two of my classes a freshman. One is a sophomore. I mean, I knew her name. She knew mine, but that was the extent of it. We were not really on a high buy basis. But still, you know, it just struck me as being pretty sad. And I thought that death was something that happens to people after they've lived a whole life and they're like really old. So the police interpreted my uh, being emotional and my grief as, as, my being sorry for what I did. So those were the two factors that put me on their radar. And maybe a reinforcing factor was that the Peekskill police got a profile, a profile, a psychological profile from a profiler from a different police department, which purported to have the psychological characteristics of what the actual perpetrator looked like. And, uh, no, not look like, but sorry, the psychological characteristics were, and I happened to match that. So that was kind of reinforcing that. So what did they do to get you to admit to doing the crime? They drove me across county lines on a school day. I was supposed to be in high school. And, uh, they did, you know, I didn't have an attorney present. My parents didn't know where I was. They withheld food. And uh, they attached me to a polygraph machine known in some quarters as a lie detector. And they basically gave me the third degree for six and a half to seven hours featuring threats, false promises, um, asking me the same questions over and over again, intimidating factors such as invading my personal space and uh, raising their voice. And yeah, so those, those, were the, those were the things that they, that they did. They did that for seven hours. And you were 17 at this point. I was 16. 16, even worse. Mm-hmm. Um, right. And, and so did you give them details? What did you tell them? Well, in the course of the interrogation that day and in a six-week run-up to that, um, they gave me details. So for about six weeks, they played this cat-and-mouse game with me, in which they, they, at the time they would talk to me as if I was a suspect, and half the time they would pretend they needed my help to solve the crime. So. 
Jeff as the junior detective helper theme was developed. They 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 gave they gave me uh, they gave me details um, what they thought happened. I regurgitated it back to them, but the interrogation was not videotaped or audiotaped. There was no signed confession. It was just the police officer's word for it. And and at some point you recanted. Well, I mean, I went to. Well, I mean, I, I never. Uh, how can I say? Um, I didn't make a statement to them saying it wasn't true. But I mean, when I got to the police station, I mean, I mean, the, the jail. I mean, I told people I was innocent. I mean, I certainly maintained my innocence at the trial and throughout my 16-year incarceration. Um, so, if you want to interpret that as a recantation, I mean, you could. I mean, did I ever like declare to the police themselves prior, right after confessing, but before? You know, being taken into custody. Hey, what I just told you is false. I mean, that that I didn't do. I see. But but I mean, at the end of everything, I was curled up into a fetal position. I was on the floor crying uncontrollably. So this was this was really a classic false confession, then. Yes, it was. And um, they had DNA evidence at the time that showed it wasn't you, right? Okay, so after I had confessed, but prior to going to trial, the results of a DNA test came in from the FBI lab, which did, as you point out correctly, it did show that the semen found on the victim didn't match me. In fact, the prosecutor told the police before this, the day of the interrogation of false confession, as they wanted to arrest me before that, but the prosecutor told the police, do not arrest me. You have no evidence. Wait until the DNA test result comes back from the FBI lab. But you know they weren't content to do that, and that was why they, you know, coerced the confession out of me. And yeah, before everything, they did have a negative DNA test. Yes. So, a lot of people will go, well, why would anybody confess to something? that they didn't do. But this is actually pretty common, and it's one of the leading causes of wrongful convictions. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yes. Coerced false confessions have been the cause of wrongful conviction in 25% of the DNA-proven wrongful convictions. Uh, Particularly vulnerable populations are uh, youth and people with mental health issues, which, you know, I was a youth. I was 16. But I, I guess I would say that until you're in the situation, uh, you really you, it's hard to understand. I wasn't nobody when people false confess falsely confess like I wasn't thinking about the long term implications. I was only I was in fear of my life. Uh, the fact I didn't know where I was and no one else knew where I was either loomed very large in my mind. Uh, I felt overwhelmed emotionally and psychologically. Um, all, all I was thinking is I wanted to get out of here. I wanted them to stop interrogating me, you know, and then so motivated by that desire and that fear and that lack of foresight into what would happen next if I did, in fact, falsely confess. Uh, and then there was the uh, the way forward was fully open for me when they threw in the false promise of telling me that, I did as they wanted that they stopped what they're doing that I was not going to be arrested afterwards. Uh, I made the decision at that point to uh, falsely confess. And, and, you know, among all those things, you know, one of the things that I think is very controversial is the fact that uh, police officers are allowed to lie to people uh, when they interrogate them. Yeah, they are. Yeah. And, And so that creates... Yeah, especially when you're dealing with a 16-year-old who doesn't have an attorney there, uh, that really um, creates problems. I think it's coercive. Absolutely. Um, and, and so that seems to be, you know, I, I, I understand the need to, to video and document uh, these things better, and uh, but, you know, the ability to lie, especially uh, something like that, um, seems to be uh, something that should be able to clean up. Yeah, I agree. I I, I agree with that because when uh, police lie to a suspect, you know that can have the impact of conveying the message to the suspect that nothing less than a confession will be accepted. So you get convicted. 
um, in this yeah. case. Uh, what was the sentence? The sentence was 15 to life. So what are you thinking at this point? When I was sentenced? Yeah. Well, at that point, I, well, first I'll just, I want to add that, you know, I tried to stop the sentencing by begging the judge to overturn the verdict because I was innocent and I referenced the DNA and he told me that he said on the record, you know, maybe you are innocent, uh, which you would think that, I mean, first of all, how could there not have been a doubt since the DNA didn't match me? And you would think that he would uh, have exercised his discretion by overturning the conviction, which he could have done by, you know, reversing any number of rulings he made against me in the course of the trial. Um, But, um, so beyond that, once I was sentenced, in my mind, I, I mean, in a way I felt numb because how can you not in getting a 15 life sentence? I mean, particularly at 17, I, as I turned uh, 17 at this point, you know, you can't conceptualize doing 15 to life. But then on a different side of it, at the same time, I thought in my mind that I was only doing a year or two until the next you know, until my appeal was heard, which I was sure I was going to win because I was innocent and I still believed in the system. And that turned out to be not true. Uh, what happened with your appeal? So I lost seven appeals. So the first one, um, they they wrote that I was, despite being driven on a school day across county lines with no money and no independent way of escape, despite all the tactics that I've already referenced, they wrote that I was not in custody, which altered their analysis. They ruled that the statements were voluntary. They ruled that I knowing, knowingly, willingly, and intelligently waived my rights, which I didn't understand my rights at 16, what 16-year-old does, so I don't see how the intelligently aspect or knowingly was you know, uh, satisfied. But aside from that, they also they rejected my innocence arguments based on the DNA. They wrote that there was overwhelming evidence of guilt. And then they got rid of my six other issues of law in one sentence by saying they had looked at the rest of my contentions and found them to either be without merit or not preserved for review. Uh, and then that, that was it for that appeal. And although I had six more appeals after that, that was the most that any court ever wrote. So my lawyer moved to re-argue the case in front of them, and that was denied in one word. Uh, New York State Court of Appeals, uh, the state's highest court, they declined to give me permission to appeal to them. I lost in federal court because the court clerk gave my lawyers the wrong information on the filing procedure, and the court deemed that my being four days too late was more important than my innocence argument and my Fifth Amendment claims. That ruling was upheld uh, in the next three courts, including twice in front of uh, future U.S. Supreme Court Justice Sonia Sotomayor. Ultimately, I was... so after my appeals were over, I wrote letters for four years trying to find free legal representation because the only way back in the court at that point is if you can find some previously unknown evidence of innocence. Uh, I rarely got answers back. Then I went to the parole board. Uh, I maintained my innocence at the parole board rather than expressing uh, expressing remorse and you know uh, showing insight into my hate behavior and uh, accepting responsibility. And they didn't want to hear that I was innocent. So I got turned down for parole as well. Ultimately, three factors led to my being exonerated. Number one, I wound up with the Help of the Innocence Project. Number two, the uh, district attorney who took office before my first appeal was decided who fought all seven of my appeals, including repeatedly blocking me from getting further testing through the data bank. Um, Janine Carroll, she left office. And then the third thing was we got lucky that the actual perpetrator killed the second victim three and a half years later after killing the victim in my case. He got caught for that, and so that resulted in his DNA being put into the data bank. And so when I was able to get the further testing, the results matched him, and he subsequently confessed and pled guilty and was sentenced for the crime, and I was I was exonerated. All of my charges were dismissed on actual grounds with the prosecution agreeing with my lawyers so I, I think this is an important point to emphasize because we tend to think of the victim in a wrongful conviction as simply being the person that's wrongly convicted, but there's a big consequence in your case for them getting the wrong guy. 
they get the wrong guy and this guy is still out there and he ends up killing another person. That is correct. He killed a, 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 the, what the police and prosecution and ultimately a failure on the part of the court system. I mean, there's some, through all those combined efforts, and then my lawyer, also the public defender, who basically didn't defend me, the end result of it all was, as you correctly point out, a second victim who was a school teacher who had two children. She ultimately lost her life, and uh, you know, um, it denied proper closure to the the family of the victim. In my case, it denied proper closure to them which would have happened if they had gotten the right person. You know, instead they thought, most of them thought for many years that I was, you know, I was the, that I was the, the murderer of the, of the victim. And, uh, and they, some of them hated me, which I guess is kind of a natural reaction. So everybody, everybody lost out. Yeah. So everybody lost in your case, um, especially yeah, you. I am, uh, Definitely me, my family, the original, the original uh, victim's family. In my case, the, then there was the second crime victim and her family, and uh, yeah, then the, the the society at large paid a paid a price as well. So after you get exonerated, did you ever hear back from anybody involved in your original case? Going, oh gosh, sorry, we messed this up. No, I, I sued everyone who was involved, but none of them ever apologized to me. The only person who apologized was the actual criminal. Interesting. You know, and yeah, he, he, he apologized for keeping his mouth shut, you know, while I was doing time for his crime. But but he even but even he, he kinda dampers that a bit because he he mixes a lie in with his apology, so he claims not to know, not to have known that I was in prison for his crime, which is possible because he continued to live in Peekskill, a small city. This was a high-profile case. Every time I made a court appearance, it was a major media moment. Everybody was talking about it since there hadn't been a murder in Peekskill for about 20 years. So there's no way he could have not known about it. So that takes away the impact of his apology. So I know that some people listening might think it's the fact that an apology from anybody could make any impact at all is, is kind of uh, crazy or absurd or whatever, but there is an element of closure that could be had with that, but I was denied that, and I, I, that would have meant a lot to me, just to have an acknowledgement by a governmental entity that, that was involved that, you know, we did something wrong to you. You know, and we're, we're sorry for it. And as part of our apology, we're now going to do things different. But that never happened. Now, I want to go back to your actual exoneration. So how did that process work? The Innocence Project got, got involved, um, and they got uh, the, um, the prosecutor to retest the DNA. Is that how it worked? That is how it worked, yes. And... Uh, yeah. And so it was, you know, basically it excluded you and basically hit on this guy. Correct. Yes. Yes. Through, through, through what's called the DNA data bank. Yes. So th that there DNA one, data bank saved you. The DNA data bank saved me. Yes, it did. Were I you? would not be, I would not be free in doing this interview with you right now if the data bank hadn't been created. Were you expecting somebody else to get hit by that, or was that like a strike of lightning? It was a strike of lightning. Amazing. So basically, bad a, luck gets you in, and out. good luck gets you out. It was a, what's that say again? I, I said, bad luck gets you in, but good luck gets you out. Right. Well, that's the thing that bothers me the most about this, um, David, is that my exoneration happened because a series of flukes or happenstances or twists of feet or however you want to phrase it. It wasn't a deliberate outcome through some process that's replicable. It was too happenstance-ish. The system didn't 
you know, catch and correct its mistakes. I, I got exonerated despite the system. I had to overcome the system rather than being exonerated through the system. And that bothers me because I know that there are, I'm not the only one who has been wrongfully convicted and there is no process in place to where this, you know, other people be exonerated. You need this other series of coincidences and all this hard work rather than, you know, through, through, through a process that's built into and part of the, the criminal justice system. And, and that's been my observation, too, as I've gotten involved in wrongful conviction cases over the last decade. I've read more and more accounts of these cases, and it's it's amazing because every single one of them, the people that get out are, are simply lucky. Um, I remember reading this guy in uh, Alabama who was on death row for 30 or 40 years, and uh, they, they like threw up a Hail Mary pass to the uh, Supreme Court, and, um, and the Supreme Court, for some reason, nobody knows, actually reviewed the case, were appalled by what they saw, and even Scalia uh, saw that, that there was a problem and they threw out the conviction. Right. You know, I just want to add that, uh, you know, common rhetoric by district attorneys, you know, in denying innocence. Oh, you know, they've had this many appeals and this number of judges said nothing was wrong. And, you know, it's part of the rhetoric. But I want to point out that the appellate process is not well suited for catching and correcting wrongful convictions. And as proof of that theme, I want to cite the fact that the average length of wrongful imprisonment is 14 years and that it's typical that by the time someone is exonerated, their appeals have long since been exhausted. I think that the judicial tendency at finality of conviction and, and this emphasis on procedural proceduralism as opposed to substantive justice. So why did it matter that I was four days late? Wouldn't it matter whether or not my argument that I was innocent, whether that had merit or not, shouldn't that have been how my case was resolved? Why Why is the fact that I was late? Forget about why I was late. Why would that have been, you know, just positive? Um, yeah, so, I mean, just like I understand on one hand the finality, you can't keep retrying cases, but at the same time, I think whenever there's an objective reason to review a case, it's important that, that it be done because what good is the finality of conviction if that final result is inaccurate? And I think, you know, when we look at this, and, and there have been over 2,000 cases now that are wrongful convictions, and I, I believe the number is a lot higher. I, I think it could be as high as 10%. Yeah, I, just, I think the percentage is 15 to 20% personally, but even just going with the documented exoneration, which as you correctly point out, that close to like 2,400 and something per the National Registry of Exoneration. But yeah, that, that's just the people that made it out. That's not the number of wrongful convictions. And continue on with your point. Yeah, well, it, it just seems to me that, um, you know, when you look at these cases, innocence is almost beside the point. You have to find uh, these fundamental errors that the court makes, and, uh, you know, you might be able to, uh, with, with DNA exoneration, get a, a district attorney's office to agree to drop a case, but it's, it's really hard. Even then, they're fighting these cases. Correct. Correct. Uh- that is correct. And I want to point out that, you know, DNA, although it's great and I'm only home because of it, that that's no panacea. That's no solution for it. That's no catch-all because DNA is only available in 5 to 12% of all serious felony cases. So I want to shift gears here um, because while your exoneration is an amazing story, I think what you've done after you've gotten out is also an amazing story. Um, at what point did you decide that you were going to become an activist on this stuff? Uh, the day that I was released. So I did an off-the-cuff presentation and at the press conference, and I spoke for two, two and a half hours, everything I'd ever wanted to say, but could never get anyone to hear it. It all came out, and just as I thought I was wrapping up, another thought came in my mind, and so I just articulated all of that. Um, and so I realized I could be part of the innocence movement. 
at that point. And so I became an individual advocate. So I started speaking and doing media interviews and meeting with elected officials. And I was a columnist for five years for a weekly paper. Um, I pursued formal education. After that, I got a scholarship for Mercy College. I got finished a bachelor's degree. I got a master's in John, John Jay College of Criminal Justice, where my thesis was written on wrongful conviction causes and reform. And then I started the Jeffrey Deskovic Foundation for Justice, which has the goal of freeing other people. And we've been able to free seven people in six years who are wrongfully imprisoned. Then we helped change some laws um, pertaining to identification procedure and videotaping interrogation. Although, you know, the way that that law came out in New York, it's flawed because they have exceptions for second degree murder and various sex offense cases and drug cases. But it was, you know, something. That was uh, so those two and expanding the data bank. But then I'm part of the advisory board of uh, It Can Happen to You, which is a statewide coalition. And we were able to pass the country's first commission on prosecutor conduct and discovery reform. So, I mean, that's been the arc of my um, advocacy. I mean, I am a, as a result of um, you know my advocacy work, I am recognized as an advocate and an expert in the field. And I've you know, joined Restorative Justice International as a Global Advisory Council member. I believe you had on Lisa Ray on your uh, podcast a uh, uh, few weeks ago. Yep. So, um, yeah, I, I want to go back to um, the Jeffrey Deskovic Foundation. Um, tell me how you started that, and and some of the cases that you guys have been able to work on. So I started that. I I took a million and a half dollars that I got from the compensation that I won in court, and I started the organization. So our first exoneration was William Hawhey. I'm sorry, excuse me, William Lopez, who did 23 and a half years in a shotgun murder in Brooklyn. So he had a pre-existing legal team that had been with him for nine years. So we came in and worked with them. We did some investigative work, and a year later he was exonerated. Um, there was William Hawhey. So that was Putnam County. So that was where I had been driven to by the Peekskill police where they coerced the confession out of me with um, their polygraphist, uh, Daniel Stevens. So we were able to exonerate Hawkey in an arson case that actually was a electrical fire. So Hawkey did eight years and four months. There we got the district attorney degree with a defense motion that he was actually innocent. Recently, the Andrew Krivak case was overturned. So they're the same polygraphists who coerced the confession out of me. He did the same thing to Krivak, so that, uh, but, so that case was uh, recently overturned. But the Putnam County District Attorney doesn't want to acknowledge the error, so he's, he's uh, appealing that decision, and, uh, and, and he's threatening to retry Krivak. So, you know, Krivak's been denied bail. And uh, so he's, you know, still been in jail. So it's really crazy, that case, because um, his co-defendant, Anthony Petipa, was out exonerated, listed in the National Registry of Exoneration, he's been compensated. So he's been home for three years, and Krivak is still in on exactly the same set of facts. You know, that case features uh, an alternative suspect uh, who, was a, who was a serial rapist whose MO was to tie women's hands up behind their back and stuff on the waves in their mouth, and that's how the victim was found in this case. He lived a mile away from the crime scene. He wasn't the original suspect. The victim was seen a lot less being alive with him and in a red car with Connecticut plates, which this <clears throat> serial rapist had a red car and Connecticut plates. And he also confessed to a prisoner in Connecticut prison when he's doing 30 years on a sex offense. So it's pretty clear that Cleavac um, is innocent. And, you know, this other uh, serial rapist is actual as actual criminal, but Krivak has remained in prison. So those are amongst some of the more prominent cases. And um, you went to law school and uh, just finished up law school and took the bar. Uh, tell us about that and why you're doing that. Yeah, so as you, as you said, I, I graduated law school in May at the Elizabeth Hobbs School of Law at Peace University, and I recently took the bar exam. So I'm doing that to pursue my dream of exonerating others as an attorney. So as we just mentioned, the foundation has freed seven people. I mentioned some of the cases, but 
in all those situations, I mean, I had to sit in the front row in the court. I wasn't able to sit at the defense table. I wasn't able to directly represent uh, the clients or speak to the judge. And that just wasn't enough. I wanted to be the attorney representing some of those clients. So to try to make that happen, I went to law school to pursue the dream. And then, but also, you know, what I wanted to be at the time I was arrested, I, I wanted to be a lawyer then. I mean, not to do this work. I mean, wrongful conviction wasn't on my radar then, but my mother had a personal injury attorney and he, he seemed to be well respected. He had on a suit and an attached case. He seemed to be earning a decent living. So I wanted to be a lawyer. So this is one of the rare situations in life where post exoneration, it still is possible to realize a dream. And so I went for it and uh, I was able to, I was able to graduate. It was very, very hard. I did not slow down my activism while I was in law school or anything. I, I ramped it up. I mean, I remember I did, uh, I was doing present. I was doing the volume of interviews that I did increased. The demand to interview me increased because I was in law school, the uniqueness of that, and uh, did a bunch of presentations, including uh, what's called CLE's Continuing Legal Education. So I had five times during my last year, I, in partnership with one of my um, professors in this defense clinic, we did presentations in front of um, uh, groups of lawyers. The presentation was called uh, Tips for Trial Lawyers from an Exonerated Man in Law School. So I share various um, outside-of-the-box slash new ideas when it comes to representing actually innocent clients at trial rather than the conventional schools of thought slash tactics that really haven't worked in innocence cases. I mean, things like, uh, you know, in a confession case, you have to answer that confession. So it's essentially you put your client on the stand to answer why did they explain why were they, you know, why did they falsely confess and, you know, present your alibi with evidence. Uh, forget the, oh, no one's ever, no one ever believes the alibis because the jury will, you know, they're usually related or friends and the jury's going to think that they're trying to, uh, uh, you know, help help the defendant get away with a crime. I mean, I, 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 you know, things like things like that, and you know, getting away from the idea of not putting on a case. No, you have to put on. There's evidence that you can put on. Put the evidence on. Never mind worrying. Oh, the burden of proof might shift. The jury might think that, you know, they might hold it against you if the defense doesn't, you know, uh, prove a case on defense. No, if the burden of proof is on the prosecution, but you still need to present a competing set of facts, a different scenario. So things, things like those tactics there. Yeah, I definitely agree. You know, I've been uh, observing uh, cases for 10 years now, and defense attorneys don't win when they don't put on a case. They, you really have to prove innocence at trial in order for right. people to, uh, for the jury to uh, acquit. Particularly the more serious cases. The more serious the case, the more essential that is, in my opinion. Yeah, I, I mean, you know, I've I've seen cases where, you know, the defense attorney argues reasonable doubt, they lose. Um, you know, if you want to win a case, you got to put on the case, you got to fight it, you got to fight it tooth and nail, and, you know, burden shifting uh, is a real thing and it's a problem, but the reality is that the burden is shifted. The uh, jury is going to buy the prosecution argument unless the defense gives them a reason not to. Right. I, I agree with that. I agree with that completely. I, I think that some concepts are almost beyond the average layperson jury, jury to really internalize. I mean, for example, I mean, they're not supposed to uh, draw a negative inference if a defendant not t not doesn't take the stand. But in reality, most times they're going to think, well, why doesn't he take the stand? What is he hiding? What does he not want us to know? Uh, there's another thought. You know, they, uh, for example, they, there's a, a thing to overcome on the part of the defense is, well, um, the thought, well, obviously, obviously, if you didn't do it, then they wouldn't have arrested you for it. Then, you know, there's that school of thought. I mean, even there's, you know, concerns uh, or, well, I was concerned, but like a misconception that uh, the defense lawyer objects to trying to hide something from the jury. So I think that these are all, 
you know, issues that defense lawyers need to emphasize in their opening statements and in their closing arguments because I don't think that it is inherent. And even though the judge does explain that, I think I feel like it does go over the head of the jury. So, so the emphasis, I think, is important. But these are all serious, serious flaws in the, in the system. Do you find yourself, um, you know, when people find out that you were exonerated, are, are, are people accepting of that or are they looking at you with uh, suspicion? They look at me with suspicion, but not over the guilt-innocence issue. I mean, that usually is the case and for many exonerated people. It's not really for me because... There was a, my charges were dismissed on actual innocence grounds. The actual criminal was charged and convicted. And then on top of that, a study was done on what went, that was commissioned by the district attorney to investigate what went wrong in my case. But the suspicion, the eyes of suspicion revolve around the idea that, well, you were in prison for 16 years wrongfully. Yes. But you were there for 16 years. How much of that rubbed off on you? Is it safe to, quote, unquote, be alone someplace with you? So it's really on that on that level. Um, and that frustrates me because I've never been arrested for anything prior to being arrested falsely. And I've never been arrested for anything since then. You know, I, I, I'm just as safe to have around, if not more so than any other person who's never had a brush to than any law-abiding citizen. I am a law-abiding citizen. But that, that frustrates me. So there is that type of suspicion, uh, how much rubbed off on you. Other people have had concern that, uh, you know, that I now have, they, they think that I have mental issues now, and so, uh, you know, I might act violently because of some sort of mental defect. So there is that aspect, uh, that is that aspect to it of the stigma. And um, so those, those areas, yeah. And and what was it like in prison for that uh, for those sixteen years? I would describe prison as a nonstop obstacle course featuring the guards, other prisoners, and the civilians all as obstacles to the main goal, which was to overturn the conviction and regain my freedom. Uh, I had to fight off feelings of hopelessness, helplessness, depression. Um, half the time, I couldn't believe that I was actually there. Uh, certainly thoughts of giving up with things, thoughts I had to fight off, and there was definitely a lot of suicidal ideation. Prison was very dangerous. At times I was assaulted. One time I, w I, I nearly lost my life due to the uh, stigma, the stigma around, uh, you know, there's a vigilante mentality in, in prison towards people of convict or convicted of sex offenses, so. At times, that motivated other prisoners to, to assault me. There was general violence in prison all the time. I hated having that around and violence being like a, you know, just a, just a prevalent thing in prison. I mean, I, I, I hated that. There was always adrenaline in the air. There was gang activity. There was, you know, the guards often were not professional, although some were, but there were many others that were not. Nobody ever put them. Uh, and check. What is what does sixteen years feel like in prison? I mean, does it, did it feel like a lifetime? Uh, obviously, you were like only sixteen. Right, I was sixteen when I was arrested. I got bailed out, and then I turned seventeen. By the time the trial started, and I lost, and I was in prison from seventeen to thirty-two. So I lost birth deaths. I, I didn't attend birth deaths, weddings, holidays. I didn't graduate high school. I did not get to go to high school prom. Uh, the time really dragged, it really dragged on. It felt like it was a lifetime. You know, at the same time, you try to put together like a mental niche. And yeah, I developed a little routine. I mean, so I took advantage of the limited educational opportunities that were there. I got the GED and learned to type and I learned to use the computer in the workplace and I got certificates in plumbing and painting. I did food service. I taught adults how to read and write and prepare for the GED. I got an associate's degree before and completed a year towards the bachelor's before funding was cut, was cut which hasn't been restored yet. Uh, I read 
three or four nonfiction books a week. I used to go to the law library and learn the law, and that gave a sense of comfort and empowerment and felt like I was fighting back. Uh, I used to listen to sports talk radio on, on the weekend when I was in my cell, but it wasn't listening to sports talk radio. It was really like that was my lifeline to the to the uh, to the out to the outside. I, I engaged in a delib an elaborate delusion when I was at recreation. I when I was when I was playing basketball or ping pong or playing chess, I would pretend like I was a professional player, and so was everybody else. And that the game was being match was being broadcast and would be written up. And but it wasn't really like kids fantasizing about being professional athletes. It was more. It was more on the level of a defense mechanism. Like I couldn't take being in the prison anymore, so I needed to leave for a few hours just mentally. I used to cut out pictures of nature scenes and put them up on the wall, and I would just travel there mentally, and I would sleep in such a way that when I woke up, the first thing I would see would be the nature scene and not the not the uh, prison walls and cell bars. I mean, I, I, I would see all that suited off right after that. And how difficult of a transition was it when you got out? Extremely difficult. The world was different. So, first of all, technology had passed me by. I didn't, uh, like cell phones, GPS, Internet, those things didn't exist before. Uh, the culture was different. Neighborhoods didn't look the same. People I once knew had long since moved, moved, moved away. You know, I lost all, virtually all of my friends except for one when I when I was uh, arrested. The parents wouldn't allow them to socialize or play with me anymore. Uh, so those things were difficult. There were the, the psychological after effects. So it's common. It was common for. Uh, people who are wrongfully imprisoned to have altered personalities, PTSD, panic attacks, anxiety, feeling of moving at a slower speed, uh, feeling of having been frozen in time, fear on seeing law enforcement. So I did four hours of therapy a week for six years in order to get to the point where I am now. But, you know, the stigma, the psychological after effect, I was never able to obtain gainful employment. I was working as a columnist, but that was only a weekly. They only wanted one article a week. I was making some money doing speaking engagements, but, you know, that's not consistent income. So I didn't have stability of housing. I bounced around from place to place at one point and nearly ended in a homeless shelter. I, I want to also add that I think that my transition was particularly difficult because I was 17 when I was convicted. And I was in prison, as I mentioned, from 17 to 32. So I had never, to concretize what that meant for me, I had never lived alone before. I didn't have a driver's license. I had never went shopping for myself, and I wasn't used to getting the mail. I mean, all those things were new things that I had to cope with, and it was a lot. It was too much. <laughs> but I did it, and, you know, I feel like um, through the, therapy and through learning technology I feel more tied into the world I understand the culture a little bit more now and, and I think that the more time that passes by that I'm free the more the more it feels normal to be out here but you know once in a while I still do I still do feel the after effects of my experience sometimes yeah it's really interesting um, that you bring that up because you know a lot of these guys that you know they end up going in in their 20s and 30s and then they come out when they're in their 50s and 60s and they're kind of at the end of their life you uh on the other hand uh came out at 32 you're still kind of at the beginning of your life at least your professional life and so that would seem to be an advantage but i didn't think about the downside that you really hadn't lived in the world as an adult before that yeah, exactly. No, you hit the nail exactly on the head. It is kind of an unusual dynamic um, because of that. I mean, on one hand, like you said, I didn't have a chance to really fully, you know, my formative years, I didn't get to really fully form and establish identity and get into all the norms of living as an adult. So on one hand, I didn't do that, and that made things harder. But on the other hand, as you correctly point out, I mean, you know, it's still... Lots of living to do, theoretically, from released at 32. 
Um, I like to think that I've done a lot in my 12 years of freedom from getting the bachelor's to the master's to the law degree, waiting to get the law license to, you know, becoming like a quasi public persona. I've done a lot of media interviews, so I'm, uh, I do have some name recognition. I do have a large body of work as an advocate, which is really important to me. I don't, I define myself as an advocate whose backstory is I was wrongfully imprisoned, but I'm certainly much more than just an economy or just some total of my life experience. You know, I have the foundation. I am the advisory board member, as I mentioned, of the, you know, of the coalition group that's passed the laws and I'm with restorative justice international. So I like, you know, I participated in campaign in 2007, which, you know, collaborating with New Yorkers against the death penalty, we prevented capital punishment reinstatement efforts in New York. And that was part of the campaign. Connecticut, which legislatively got rid of the death penalty. So, uh, in a lot of ways, uh, you know, I feel like I've packed a lot into my 12 years of freedom. Well, we're just about out of time here. Did you have any closing thoughts? Yeah, I do. It just that it can happen to you. It doesn't happen just to, I mean, yes, wrongful conviction does happen at a really high rate to minorities, but that being said, it does and acknowledge that it does transcend, it does transcend uh, race and, you know, um, walks of life. Um, I do think it transcends, um, you know, financial, you know, socioeconomic status. I mean, certainly somebody who's falsely accused, who's got money and resources and or political connections. I mean, there's certainly better positions to fight back. But it doesn't mean that they're immune or it can't can't happen to them. So I just want to share that, you know, that I was not on the wrong. I was not a high school dropout. You know, I was not a low-level criminal and, you know, therefore on the police radar. Not that that would justify anything, but that was not my reality. I was just a middle-class white kid in the suburbs on my way to high school when I was initially intercepted by the, by the police. So... You know, if it, if it happened to me, it can and does happen to uh, to anybody. So I think that it's imperative that there be changes in the law designed to improve procedures so that you can slow down the rate of wrongful conviction. And in that aspect of it, uh, you know, I, I think everyone has a stake in it. So I do want to mention that. And I want to mention that it's important to work together. I mean, the in the era of going it alone uh, from an individual perspective or even uh, on a policy level from a nonprofit, I mean, I feel like that's not effective, that that era is gone, that it, the coalition and working together is where it's at, and that's where we can get changes done. So I hope people listening will get involved. And uh, lastly, you know, that advocacy work is not free. There's always hidden costs of, of you know, travel and lodging and other incidentals. I mean, getting material, promotional materials out. Um, and there's always a, a maintaining an office. and There's always expenses that are associated with that. And we can't expect the people who are giving their lives to do this work to also pay for everything. I mean, um, you know, we're not, we're not independently wealthy. I mean, I do have... Um, you know, I got what I got from compensation, but, you know, I live off of uh, the dividends and interest. But many people have, who are concerned and who are professionals and who are doing this work, you know, they were not wrongfully imprisoned, so there is no compensation. So it is important to financially support entities that are doing this week, do this work, I mean, including David Vanguard. So I want to encourage people to buy tickets. Don't call David up and ask for free tickets, okay? Don't email him asking him for free tickets. Break down and and buy a ticket to support the important work that you're doing. And, um, and uh, yes, I want people to come out. I'd love there to be a packed audience. I'm really looking forward to speaking about, you know, progressive prosecution and prosecutors and what does that actually look like? Why is it important? So I hope to see lots of people there. We need people to support this type of uh, this type of work, and uh, everyone has a role to play. Everybody can help on one level or another, whether that's learning about wrongful conviction or doing a podcast, writing a blog, writing an article, just having informal conversations. Uh, 
meeting with elected officials. There's all kinds of levels to signing petitions. Uh, there's electing progressive prosecutors and progressive uh, candidates. Will define progressive as not necessarily someone of the left, not 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 progressive in that aspect, but just progressive in the sense of smart on crime, about doing things differently, to with an emphasis on justice, accuracy, fairness in the justice system. And I think we can have candidates on both sides of the political aisle. When it comes to that, uh, in New York, when we passed the bill, our bill sponsor um, in the Senate was a Republican, but we need to elect people that are uh, running on planks of, 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 of change who do want to make a difference as opposed to those that, that do not. So lots of ways to get involved. We're really only limited by you know, our mind. Hey, thanks for listening. Thanks for thanks being so on. For and I'm looking forward to doing this Looking forward, I can't wait to uh, do this presentation on October 26th. And, uh, you know, for those who I want to just share, you know, that um, my birthday is actually the day after. It will be the 27th. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, for me, I, I don't I don't stop. I don't quit. So I once had reporters in my house on Christmas Day. <laughs> in a holiday feature. So this is all day, every day. For me, but I get meaning out of it. It's my place in the world. I believe that's why this did happen to me, and I just want to make a difference. I want to prevent this from happening to people, and I want to help people that it's already happened to. And I'm really happy to partner with you, David, in this event and in you know future endeavors, um, you know, in uh, in Cal in California, because this is a you know wrongful convictions a fight uh, across the country, really across the world. So. Great, thank Pleasure you. to meet you, and thank you for having me on uh, your podcast. Thanks. That was Jeffrey Deskovic. You know, one of the things that his case really rings with me is, first of all, he's right about my age. I think he's a year younger than me. And uh, and, and so as you track his, his life through, I can track my life uh, through that. Uh, the other thing is, you know, people always think, oh, well, if they're wrongfully convicted, maybe they were doing something else, and happened to be caught for the wrong thing. This guy was innocent. And a lot of these people are really innocent and these cases are very flimsy and it's really appalling uh, to see exactly uh, how these people uh, end up incarcerated at times for a very long period of time. I hate to say this, but Jeffrey was actually fortunate. I mean, he's out at the age of 32. He can restart his life. And I understand there are challenges there, but a lot of people aren't that lucky. And some of the people, when they get out, they don't live very long because they've had poor health care and poor health conditions. So it, it's a tough thing. So Jeffrey Deskovic will be one of the speakers on October the 26th. If you want to get tickets, you go to progressive-prosecution.eventbrite.com or you can go on davisvanguard.org and look up uh, our event or look us up on Facebook as well. This has been the Vanguard Court Watch podcast, and I'm David Greenwald. Thank you for joining us.